Hi, welcome to Offscript. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Today on the show, we're taking a look at Nomadland. Yes, the film that swept the Golden Globes. And also Minari, another film that was at the Golden Globes. Uh, slightly underrated, in my humble opinion. We watched both, and we're going to talk about them here on the show today. We're also going to take a look at some trailers, some things that are upcoming. We've got Oscar announcements next Monday, so we want to make sure we're in front of that. So, before we get to those, we need to talk about trailers and uh, movies and, of course, the news. First thing on the docket this week, Alamo Drafthouse files for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Wah, wah, I'm so bummed. Andy, what do you know about this story? Dude, this... Oh. So we know that theaters have really struggled during the pandemic and Alamo Drafthouse had been closed for a while and they've had to officially file for Chapter 11. But fear not, they will still be around. They've been absorbed by a kind of one, one of their um, investors and they will be closing a couple of locations. We don't know uh, which... The, which of those that will be, uh, but they will continue to run. And uh, hopefully as, as we see theaters beginning to slowly turn around, uh, they'll be open again soon. Uh, Alamo Drafthouse currently offer, uh, um, operates about 40 locations in Texas. Its headquarters are in Austin. Bit of a bummer, man. Uh, for those of you listening that aren't in Texas, we know there's a few of you, according to our wonderful podcast statistics. Uh, Alamo Drafthouse is awesome. It's this, it's this independent little theater chain. Uh, that just got a whole lot of heart and they run a lot of retro screenings and they're, they're good service and they're nice people and they're priced relatively affordably for Texas, I guess. Um, but they're cool. They're off the grid, right? They're not Cinemark. They're not AMC. They're not the standard movie fair. There's something different. There's something new. It is a bummer to see that they are really struggling and kind of a solemn reminder of just how firmly AMC and Cinemark and Regal and, and any other big theater chains how firm their grasp is on this industry. It is really hard to cut into this. Like, pandemic withstanding, 40 locations is not anything to scoff at. It's surprising they haven't been bought out yet. So I hope their new owners at Altamont Capital and Fortress Investment are, um, you know, they share the same creative vision the people who started Alamo do, because I think what they're doing is really, really good. And I think the industry needs it. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I, I can't wait for the day to go back to an Alamo draft house for sure. Yeah, man. There's, we got one right up the corner, too. It's such a shame, but hopefully it'll open back up again soon. Clearly, AMC and Cinemark haven't slowed down. In fact, if anything, they're having a good year at the movies. But before we get to them, we need to talk about Disney+. Plus. Prices are going up. That's another big bummer. Man, just starting to show off on a down note. Yes, Disney Plus is upping their subscription price by $1 for all subscribers. Monthly and annual, you're getting charged a dollar extra per month. That's the way it's going to be. This might seem like a bummer, but they did actually announce this in 2020, believe it or not. Way back when they announced that they were doing 10 Marvel series and 10 Star Wars series and all kinds of big stuff at that big Disney investors meeting in like October, November, they definitely slipped this in. And I maybe we mentioned it on the show, but I don't remember it. And it's like, okay, well, you did tell us. I guess I shouldn't be too bummed. So, yeah. yeah. Well, that's how these pricing models work. And all the other streaming services have done it. Like Netflix has slowly raised prices over the last five, you know, six, ten years. It's just part of the model. Yeah. And that's, you know, a bummer. But, like, at the same time, you know, considering everything they offer... Considering all the series that are coming and considering we just wrapped up WandaVision, which is pretty good stuff, by the way. I know this isn't a TV podcast, but just saying WandaVision is not too <laughs> bad. Um, you know, it's hard for me to look look twice at this. Like right now they charge, what, $8 a month? They're going up, or seven, I think. They're going up to eight. Like, okay. Netflix is 14. <laughs> Hulu without ads is like 13. You know, eight, eight bucks doesn't hurt me so bad. So yeah. I don't mind. It does feel frequent. I feel like they've upped the price probably at this time last year they did this right so i don't know i, I andy i'm curious because you're you're not exactly the target audience for disney plus do you feel like you're getting your values worth out of that subscription yeah i always you know i calculate it by how much i use a service like how many hours of tv did i watch versus how much did i pay you so yeah you know this the last few well this week i've watched uh you know pretty much all of wandavision and i caught up on several marvel movies uh so that's under a dollar a month for or under a dollar an hour for what I pay. So that's super yeah. cheap still for entertainment and, you know, still less of what you're going to pay to go to the theater. Right. So still definitely. Yeah. It's, a, it's about how much you're using it. Justifying its cost in uh, in in March, for sure. April's still up for debate. And real quick, while I'm thinking about it, you have watched a bunch of Marvel movies uh, getting around for WandaVision. Uh, how... How's that been on the user side? I mean, I assume you just whip open the Marvel tab on Disney Plus and it's like they're all there, right? Like you just 
It's a yeah, buffet so it's, of Marvel content. So it's actually really interesting. They they're ordered in phases, so you can watch by phase one, phase two, phase three, or they have them in timeline order. So like Captain yeah. America is the first one, and then Captain Marvel being the second one. So they have them in chronological order of when the movies actually take place. Um, that actually, that well. actually make that actually makes a lot of sense. My sister's been rewatching in chronological order. Uh, hey Tara, if you're hearing this, I know you listen to the show every once in a while. How's it going? Uh, she's been watching in like timeline order, and I was trying to suss out how she figured that out. I was like, God, you need a spreadsheet to figure out like what order these movies all came in. Fortunately, they have it conveniently placed. Any uh, before we move on from this one, any other thoughts on rewatching old Marvel movies? Hot takes for as well. A- yeah, well, first of all, there's a lot that I hadn't seen in several years um, yeah. or, since they first came out. And they really hold up. And it's uh, what impresses me more than anything is the consistency of Marvel. I mean, I was watching things mainly to get ready for WandaVision. And, you know, things that happen in Age of Ultron or in when you first see them at the end of Winter, Winter Soldier are still consistently like the stories and characters are consistent up through the the series, you know, whereas you look at something like star Wars, star Wars can't decide what it wants to do from film to film. Right. Like somehow they, they couldn't plan like three star Wars films out, but it feels like the Marvel universe is like a large sweeping picture. It's funny. I was watching an interview with uh, Paul Bettany earlier today about WandaVision and they asked him when you, when you started, at Marvel, it was doing Jarvis in Iron Man 1. Like, he was the voice of the suit. That was that was Paul Bettany's role. And they said, when you started here, was there any plan for you to be a bigger character? He's like, absolutely not. No. Like, they just figured it out as they went along. But it feels like a cohesive vision, pardon the pun. Which ones have you watched again? Uh, a lot. <laughs> so I, yeah. To get ready for WandaVision, I rewatched Age of Ultron, which I don't think I'd seen since it came out. Um, I rewatched Civil War, and I rewatched infinity war and then good and then last night i actually ended up rewatching winter soldier to get ready for the next series so oh yeah they they all hold up really well like i said it's stunning the the consistency and just like the future planning uh of everything yeah and also like the the direction and tone like they all feel really cohesive even though they're all done by different groups of people and different directors and different writers like somehow they feel like they're just part of this big vision, but um, they're all independent movies with their own strengths and weaknesses. It's a funny thing right. Marvel's done, yeah. In comparison to DC, we'll talk about that another time. Uh, <laughs> our last story, it's kind of a double. It's actually two stories, but we're going to roll it into one for the sake of doing a podcast. Uh, there's been a big week at the box office. Actually, the biggest week at the box office in, I don't know, a whole year or something. We've been crushing it at the theaters this week, but it might come at a cost. Our people at Cinemark are having some trouble with Disney and they've got something to say about it. Andy, what can you make of this vague headline? I've, I've Frankenstein <laughs> together. So we had the best weekend we've had at the theaters in almost a year uh, with about around $25 million weekend, which is generally low, but for pandemic times, it's very good. Uh, it surpasses the Christmas weekend when uh, Wonder Woman came out only by a little bit. Uh, not by a ton. So people are still going out to, and we have a lot more movies. Like the, the big release was the Disney's Raya and the last dragon. Um, however, Raya and the last dragon was absent from Cinemark theaters, uh, which I was kind of surprised by. And I, I didn't, I, again, I was confused on the release, but, uh, it was playing at, at, um, AMC and some other chains, but it was not, uh, playing at Cinemark. Yeah, this is a bit of uh, theater drama that we didn't really know about. I only caught this like in an errant tweet, uh, and I didn't even really see it on Reddit, like going around at all. And and <laughs> yeah, Cinemark, uh, the national chain, has refused to run *Ryan the Last Dragon* at any of its 345 theaters during its opening weekend. It's the second largest theater chain in America, and they are not running the primary Disney film. What is going on? Uh, no statement from Cinemark. We have no idea. We do know that um, people are at odds or theater owners are at odds with the current uh, streaming service dual setup kind of thing. So maybe Cinemark's just mad that Ryan the Last Dragon is available in VOD. We don't know. AMC's running it. Uh, Regal Theaters, the few that are open, are running. Um, Cinemark has just decided not to. And we don't have a reason why. And that's really odd. Uh, what do you yeah, think, the Yeah, the... the- it points to the hybrid release, which a lot of theaters were not happy about. Um, but like we said, the theaters don't have a lot of leverage. But it, but Cinemark is still holding out, and they said, "Well, we're not going to pay play your your movie at all," um, which hurts both people. And we'll see how that strategy plays out. 
I wonder, yeah, if this is any kind of bridge burning move. I probably not, right? You're the second biggest theater chain in no. America. It's not like Disney's going to say, "Well, we're done. We're never working together again." But it's stark. Like this does this isn't for nothing. It's worth mentioning. Uh, the movie only grossed eight point six million dollars in the U.S. and Canada, but like it might have cleared ten had Cinemark been open. You know, like that's a big deal. That's three hundred and forty-five theaters. That's three hundred forty-five screens every three hours that are running this thing. You know, um, I don't know. It's weird. It's just weird. So that's the weird update from Cinemark and Disney. More on that uh, here on Off Script, I guess. Keep it keep it real, but. As far as the box office goes, not bad. That's that's a bit of good news, right? Like Golden Globes are coming around. People are seeing the Oscars. They're getting excited. Okay. Well, the, people are going to the movies a little bit. Right. Well, there's actually a few more releases. Um, like we said, Ray in the, in the Last Dragon was a big one, but we also had uh, Chaos Walking, which is the uh, Daisy Ridley, Tom Holland sci-fi thing, which I heard isn't very good, but it's... Uh, supposedly uh, is very bad, yeah. It's still a new it's still a new film, and there's some small indie, indie films like Nomadland is playing, Minari is playing, so th- there's some reasons for people to, to get out and go to the theater. Yeah, so I don't know. I guess that's good news, right? Keep it here on Oscar for more. Also, states that are... Um, loosening their mask mandates right people who feel like they can uh, um, get away with maybe going out a little bit more i guess is good for the theater industry and that's all i've got to say about that so let's jump into our two films a red letter week at off script film review i'm going to be taking the summary on this first one so please excuse my clumsy delivery the movie is uh nomadland You are one of those lucky people that can travel anywhere. Yes, ma'am. I know. And they sometimes call you nomads. So, Nomadland is the story of Fern. Uh, she is a American housewife who's been upset from her home uh, after her husband passed away at this wonderful uh, mining plant they worked at in Nebraska. Uh, since then the mining plant closed in the 2008 financial crisis. Uh, she had to figure out something. She had no money. She had no retirement. So she buys a van, names it Vanguard and becomes a nomad roaming the American West, uh, driving from town to town, finding work. She lives out of her van. She's got a little bed in there and a little kitchenette, but she makes things and she interacts with other nomads as they travel around the world. Uh, around the, the country. The movie is written and directed by, or I should say directed by Chloe Zhao. It's actually based on a book uh, from a woman who actually hung out with nomads. She traveled the country for a couple of years uh, and learned about them and their experiences. These are real people who do real things. And in fact, uh, not only did she collaborate closely with Chloe on developing the book, but Clo- uh, the film, but Chloe went and traveled around the country with her more. And many of the people who are featured in the book are in this movie. They're, they're, they use their real names. They are real nomads. Many of the extras in this film are actual people who are featured in the book, who are who are featured for interviews. They, they don't have IMDb pages. Um, so it's, it's a very kind of grassroots production. The film stars Francis McDormand as Fern, our titular character. It was made uh, last year, came out this year, and is currently available on Hulu for streaming and also theaters if you're interested in going there. Andy... What did you think of Nomadland? So this is one of those movies that um, is very deep and philosophical, and it is a good film. But I really struggled to get through it. It it was uh, it was a bit of a chore. I was kind of bored, but what it's about is very interesting. It's one of those movies that I'm much I'm glad to have seen and be able to talk about, but it wasn't super enjoyable. A little bit like Phantom Thread. Um, it's just it's a little slow and it's super it's kind of depressing because you meet these people that like they have no work they have no money they don't have health insurance they don't have a lot of family they're just kind of floating from you know entry-level job to entry-level job seasonal job to seasonal job uh, you know and if basically if anything goes wrong at all we either with their health or with their car or with anything like it's just the their whole existence is just going to implode um so there are a lot of good things to talk about this film but it was a bit of a struggle for me yeah i'm kind of in the same boat and listen i i say this in the best way right a movie does not get nominated for and subsequently win golden globes if it is bad this is not a bad film 
But it's a bit of a downer, like in the best way. It, it's encouraging and it's it's got something to say about like the free spirit of the American people and like how how there's so much opportunity and so much life out there besides just work, right? Like that's a big part of it. These people travel the country in these vans and they're they're I mean, in a way, they're homeless. Yes, it's hard It's hard to look past that. At the same time, they see the world in the way the rest of us don't. The rest of us who are running the rat race don't have an opportunity to see the beauty of the American landscape and, and the wonder of possibility, you know, an un unbridled opportunism that comes with that. But at the same time, yeah, it's about a bunch of retirees who have no money and nothing left and nobody in their lives. And that is a, a downer. It reminds me a little bit the movie I thought of when I was watching this was 2016's Manchester by the Sea, right? Mm -hmm. A really good film and strong and encouraging, but also a little bit of a downer. Uh, and like, it's hard to shake that. Um, and I think I, I love that movie. <laughs> I know you do. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't, I don't take it lightly. Uh, best picture winner in 2016, right? I'm pretty sure. Uh, like, I think it was nominated. I don't think. It oh, was. criminal. Um, anyway, yeah, uh, a movie that is like very good and encouraging, but a bit of a downer. And that's okay because I think, you know, experiences like that, you find something maybe in yourself. It definitely encourages the audience to look inward and see how you feel about the situation of these people who are roaming the country, who are fundamentally homeless. Um, let's talk about Nomadland. We watched it on Hulu. That's where I watched it anyway. Did you go see it in a the theater or did you watch it at home? Hulu. Okay, perfect. Me too. Um, I probably should have watched it in the theater so I would pay attention better. To, well, I think, I think a big part of the problem with the paying attention we'll get to in a minute is the runtime it's in fact maybe that's the best place to start this movie feels too long it's like two hours but it, that's the thing it's not it's like 145 and it okay feels it's, too it's long. not even two it's long it's a lot of like it's just really I, slow so yeah so this movie is almost all on location not a whole lot of this takes place in a set like chloe and 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 her her crew like literally traveled around in the van that, that Francis McDormand is hanging out with, along with a couple of other trucks and vans for, you know, camera crew and stuff. Like, it's not not just a van, but fundamentally, like, they're traveling the country going to do these things. Like, they're they're going to this big nomad meetup out in Arizona um, that's once a year that apparently is a very real thing, who they interviewed real people for in the film. Like, the extras you see are people who go to this thing every year. They work closely, like, with Amazon, because even though this isn't on Amazon Prime, Amazon is boldly featured in this film to get shots of their warehouses and how that all that stuff works they they travel to nebraska to this old house that that, that francis mcdormand's character is from like this this movie is basically a road movie uh at its core but it's very solemn because our character is alone and so it's a whole lot of like introspective stuff right she's looking at the landscape and you hear some music she's she's read an old paperback that her dad gave her, or she's, she's looking at a thing she got from another nomad. Very quiet, very, very introspective. And therefore very long takes of not a lot of action. And it just feels long and that's not bad. I think it's good for the atmosphere, but I could see why it would. I mean, I, it was hard. I'll be honest. I got my phone out a couple times watching this movie for yeah. sure. I mean, it's hard not to. And what do you think? <laughs> so again, this is where I think a theatrical view and what actually benefited because it, a lot of like it spends time on these great American landscapes. You're out in the the Southwest, the Northwest, mountains, rivers, all that. It doesn't come across as cool on the small screen as it does if you were seeing it. I, I think on a big screen in a big theater, um, it is very kind of solemn. But it it has it's one of these kind of cautionary tales because one of the things it's about is about kind of living life to the fullest, and you you get there by seeing all these characters who have not done that, who have, you know, they worked all their lives and then their retirement fell through at the very right. end. And now they don't have anything or, or, you know, a couple of stories about people who like died the week before they were about to retire. And so now like the, some of these people are just trying to get out there and live life while they still can. Yeah. And, and that's tough to listen to. I mean, it's a, it's like a slow motion, like epilogue to the great recession here. Like these are people who, yeah, have worked their entire lives and have nothing. I think that's most interesting probably in the characters we're seeing on the side, right? Fern, Francis McDormand's Fern is very well played. Francis McDormand's fantastic. And she's really got these, 
she, she's got this weariness to her, right? Like, I think that's part of what Frances McDormand does so well. She was fantastic in three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri for the exact same reason. Like she just looks tired. She looks like she has been put through the ringer so many times in her life and she's a hard worker and she comes back to it and she's perfect to play this character Fern who's been ousted from her life and has no husband and has nothing left and just kind of traveling around trying to figure out what life is supposed to be. Um, but the best example of, of who these people are comes in the people who are actual nomads, right? These extras, these side characters who feel so real because they're hardly even acting. This is just their life. And it makes it like a double bummer because they're talking <laughs> yeah. about, yeah, like some horrible thing that happened. Oh yeah. My husband died in a house fire and I was left with nothing or my, my son doesn't talk to me anymore. Dude, that stuff is hard to watch for an hour 45. It's, it's challenging, but Looking at it from the audience's perspective, right, from inside of our seats, looking at it on the big screen, it gives us the opportunity to reflect that these people haven't had. That's what's so important, that we can look at our own lives. We can walk outside the theater or outside of our living room when we're done watching on Hulu and say, wow, I'm going to call my mom or I'm going to I'm going to not take work so seriously tomorrow. You know, like it, it gives you that perspective. That's what this movie does well. And I think in those extras, that's where you see a lot of that. The people who are actually living it. Yeah, I was going to say that while it's kind of filmed in a documentary style, like yeah. that's, it feels very that way, and it almost is in a lot of times. We do still have this a central narrative of Fern is, like we like you said, her husband has died and the, the plant that was kind of supporting the town closed and the whole town closed. And she, so at the beginning of the film, she's just starting out on her journey kind of as a nomad and she has to learn how to, kind of how to do it. And she goes to these, you know, nomad meetups uh, for lack yeah. of a better term, but she learns, you know, th this is where they kind of disperse knowledge. They said that, you know, this is how, how you get, this is what you need in your van. These are like some essential items. This is how you park overnight and don't get caught or don't get in trouble. You know, she's got to kind of learn and, you know, she's floating around kind of from job to job. Meanwhile, she's, like you said, she's really dealing with, or r rather hasn't dealt with the the passing of, of her husband, which is like a, a big theme. Death is kind of a big theme in this movie, which again doesn't add to yeah. the, to the, it adds to the down, but it is, you know, it is one of the themes. It's about, and what does the, and what is the end of your life going to look like? And um, again, it's, it's, and that's why I think this is a good movie. There are important things, philosophical things here. It's just, it's just tough. Yeah. And, and, Frances McDormand's character, Fern, is not based on anybody in particular. In fact, she's the only really fictional character in the film, reportedly. Um, she She's kind of this amalgamation of ideas, yeah, from the writer and the director to kind of bring us to this environment of these very real people. Um, she is our vehicle in which we experience like this lifestyle, right? And so, yeah, it, it's, it's, it makes perfect writing sense. The beginning of the film, she's just starting out, don't really know how to do this. By the end of the movie, she's got her sea legs. And like, this is, this is a lifestyle that, um, well, you can watch it and find out whether or not she kind of comes to accept it or, or reject, um, what is happening as a nomad. But I think, the cinematography is worth mentioning. Uh, like you said, it, it is the American landscape made manifest. Chloe Zhao shot this whole film with like big wide open lenses and you're getting these huge skyscape scrapes in the background and like mountains way back there. I mean, it looks like something out of Lawrence of Arabia, like just, it looks fantastic. And like, you're constantly seeing the big open sky and these beautiful sunsets, these gorgeous sunrises that these characters are seeing as they pass through, you know, America from job to job. But it's so artfully played against the script, which is a bummer. <laughs> it's just constantly like, I don't really know where I'm going. I have no direction. I mean, fundamentally, these characters are in purgatory. They're just waiting to go to heaven. They're waiting to die. Like, and it's just kind of a big waiting game of what's going to happen next. Where, you know, what's what's the next big adventure? What's going to break tell next? <laughs> yes, they tell each other, I'll see you down the road, right? They don't even say goodbye. I mean, there's this weird idea that you can com be completely off the grid and completely self-sustaining and also lacking of, like the societal connection that makes us all mm -hmm. uh, feel for each other. I don't know. I'm really, I'm getting really metaphorical here. Andy, pull me out of this. I'm getting really stuck. Yeah. So, so like I said, it, it looks, we have great American landscapes. We have this unique story of, of nomads, a lot of whom are real life nomads. Um, and a lot of it is about the tragedy. I think a lot of, in a lot of ways, it's kind of an indictment of capitalism, you know, yes. because you have a lot of these 
older workers who have done, you know, who have worked a, a job at a place all their lives and then, you know, the, neither th- themselves nor the plant nor the economy was re- really ready for any kind of change, you know, and what to, what do you do with workers who have only done one thing and not really adapted to, you know, changing times because they hadn't ha- they haven't had to for so long then all of a sudden they do. Yeah. I I 100% agree. Like it it definitely is an indictment of an economic system. Um, All of these people paid into retirement. All of them were were like, I think I'm going to pay into this thing and get my fair shake. And then something goes wrong at the end. Their spouse passes away or the bank doesn't pay out or the uh, whatever their home burns down and they lose it all. And so now they're having to wander and basically get, you know, 200, 300 bucks a month, which is practically unemployment in some States. Um, And they're supposed to get by on that and they can't, but what they can do is they can pay for gas and they can pay for repairs to their vans and they can, they can kind of travel. Um, yeah, there's, there's a great kind of opening. That's not an opening scene. It's a few minutes into the film when she kind of decides, Hey, I'm going to kind of leave my, my hometown as I know it and travel down to this kind of nomad how to camp for a week to learn about how to, how to live this lifestyle. And once they get down there, um, you know, she she kind of finds her way. But the leader of this organization, if you can call it that, very, makes it very clear. Like, you're supposed to be completely self-sustaining. Like, you are not contributing to the economy and you're not pulling anything from the economy. You're entirely on your own. Like, yeah, they're basically socialists. Fundamentally, I mean, they're, yeah. That's that's the system. They, they, they share stuff. Take, leave one, take one, right, is their whole mantra. Like, they're... They're, they're very anti-capitalist, and that's an interesting note to make in this film. That's an interesting point made by the director. Right, yeah, like I said, the the economic situation and kind of what's caused all this is also a thing, and it's, it's never directly addressed, which is another interesting part. It makes it kind of that much more impactful. Yeah, and a lot of Fern's backstory isn't directly addressed. You never really get to know Frances McDormand's character. I mean, you kind of get an insight into her world, but you never break inside her mind. There's never dialogue. She's never writing in a diary. Like, there's never a real insight into who she is. You get some family. You get a little bit of how she explains herself to other people. But I think just like the nomads, she's intentionally left at arm's length to the audience. We're never really supposed to get to know her. The only way that's going to happen is if you get out and hit the road yourself. But... For a look into the lifestyle, Nomadland does a pretty good job. So we covered cinematography, a little bit of writing, acting, uh, pace, which is a bit of a problem. Any, any, anything else you want to talk about here, Andy? Music, it maybe. Did, it, I was gonna say it does have a nice score. Like the, the music really fits what what's happening on screen, and the like I said, the big open landscapes when a lot of these characters are talking and a lot of emotions are happening. The the score is a nice touch as, as well. Yeah, I agree. It's 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 not too shabby. So. I wish I had more to say about it. I hate to say I kind of don't recall it, but it was a couple weeks ago I watched it. I probably should have rewatched it for the show. But either way, I, I like what it's doing. Uh, fundamentally, I, I like what Nomadland has to say. I wish it wasn't such a melancholy that the film kind of rides that line of. I think it's one of the amazing things about movies to be able to kind of tap into an emotion and do that. But it's difficult for me to recommend, right? Who am I going to tell my parents? Hey, go watch this movie. They're going to get, they're going to get to the end of this and be like, Oh my God, like what, what did we, what did we live in America for all these years? Oh, this is the worst, but I don't know. Anyway, we should probably move on to recommendations. Andy, any other thoughts before, uh, you know, the big, the big hammer. Uh, I'm ready. Andy, would you recommend Nomadland? You know, I think I'm going to actually say pass for Ooh. this for most. Like I said, there are good things about it. I just, I couldn't in good content recommend this to anyone. I feel like anyone I recommended this to would hate it. Yeah. Um, and it's it's getting a lot of awards. Like, you know, there are, are good performances. It's an interesting subject. Uh, you know, it's a bit of a tragedy. Like, there are great things about it. But, man, it's just a struggle to get through. And I don't think I can recommend it to many people. Yeah, I'm kind of in the same boat. I, I actually will recommend it. Um, I, I do think it's worth watching. Um, I think it's watch it's worth watching if you're a particular kind of audience member, though. It's definitely not general public. I don't think you're going to be into this. Your kids are not going to like this movie at all. Uh, your parents may not even like this movie at all. But it's a, it's a movie that, like I said, it, it kind of exists in this odd purgatory between like the end of your career and the end of your life. And it tells that story in a way I haven't seen before about people who are very raw and vulnerable and honest and just as human as the rest of us, but have managed to 
somehow slip outside of the stream or maybe fall through the cracks of, of the helter skelter lifestyle we live in, move outside of the city, get away from everybody else and find purpose when you genuinely have none. I think this movie does a great job of showing that it's long. It doesn't do it very verbally. That's for sure. There's <laughs> not a whole lot of spoken dialogue in this movie, but if you're looking for something different, if you want something offbeat, and if you really want to know why this movie is winning awards, go check out Nomadland on Hulu. It's If you already have it, you can watch it with ads or you can watch it without if you have the means. Uh, you know, if you need something to go to at a theater, it's probably the best place to see it. But for what it's worth, I don't think this movie is worth not recommending. I just have trouble deciding who to recommend it to. So that's right. Nomadland, a complicated movie for a complicated time. Uh, with that, we need to move. What does that mean? <laughs> complicated move for a complicated time i think i just stepped outside of my own body for a second with that <laughs> we need to move on to our next section of the episode we're talking about some some trailers coming up Andy, you want to introduce this for us it's time for the trailer part perfect uh what's first on the docket normally we split these up we kind of haven't though uh you want to take the first one no, sure wait, hold on. You should take the second one because you're, you're the comic book man. I should take the first one, right? Ah, that's right. That'll All work. right. That's complicated. <laughs> Sorry, listeners. Yeah, the, the movie is Mortal Kombat. So Mortal Kombat has a trailer out. Yes, the, the video game franchise that invented the video game ratings board system. So now we have video game ratings. There's too much blood in Mortal Kombat. Has a new film coming out. And this isn't some lame direct-to-DVD sequel you'd find in a red box. No, no. This is a cinematic endeavor produced by Lionsgate, all right? This is no joke. Mortal Kombat is getting a full film. There's a trailer out for this movie. And what's most surprising is the trailer's kind of good. Like, if I didn't know any better, I'd say the trailer looks like it's going to be for a good movie. And Andy, <laughs> what do you think? The trailer looked really pretty awesome, and it kind of went viral uh, when it came out. Um, I remember when the first Mortal Kombat film came out, which I saw in theaters, and it's awful. Like, it's so bad. And it's the only thing worse is the second one is the sequel. Uh, they're just super campy. The The character design uh, just doesn't really translate from the from the video game. Um but this is looks entirely different. It it looks super awesome. There's lots of action. The characters look really cool. Uh, it it invokes like the kind of ultra violence of that the video game is is known for, um, and and everyone was kind of hyped about it. Yeah, it's got all the characters, right? You got Liu Kang and Raiden in there, and and Sonya Blade and 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 Johnny. Ca- I don't know if you know Johnny Cage is in there. All all the Mortal Kombat state mainstays for the video game nerds like me are in there. Uh, and if you like the you know the the Mortal Kombat theme, because that's ultimately what's going on. Reportedly, that theme is in the movie in some capacity. The director confirmed in an interview with Variety the other day. He's like, "Yes, we put it in the movie. My God, it's in there somehow." So. Look that's, forward to the Mortal. Yeah, that's the hilarious part. Is that like Mortal Kombat, the original Mortal Kombat, nineteen ninety five, is a terrible, terrible movie, but somehow yes. it has like the greatest theme song ever. Yes. Like, they wrote the, like somehow they wrote this techno uh, theme for the movie, and it's it's well known, and it has been a mainstay since. So that's kind of hilarious. Yeah, uh, it's true. Like that's that's what people want to know about the video game and the theme, and if you can have both those things, you're good. So. I don't know. I'm tentatively excited about Mortal Kombat. But up to this point, I was like, this movie looks dumb. It's some studio that just bought the license. Who cares? Decent trailer. Okay, you got my attention. Now let's see if they can deliver. Speaking of delivery, oh my God, this next trailer is a, uh, it's for something. Andy, you want to tell the people what's up? Uh, Zack Snyder's Justice League. So we've seen a couple of, of trailers for this, and they've been the the previous trailers have been really bad. They've been really slow, black and white, set to Lo- Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah. Um, not yes. real great. Not in inter- We finally get a real trailer that actually got me a little excited for the movie. Uh, we did just get. To, it looks like a normal action film trailer. We get to see our characters. It's in color, glorious Technicolor. Um, it looks much more interesting. I, I actually. Also went back and rewatched Justice League to get ready for um oh god <laughs> Zack Snyder's Justice League um it's pretty mediocre um, it's pretty it's bad just, well it's just it's so forgettable it's and yeah. it's like there's you know you're missing a lot of the uh kind of chemistry between the characters the characters aren't really established well enough there's so much CGI it looks like a video game half the time yeah so I can't imagine that this is really good. like and that movie's a solid two hours like it's not 
the two and a half hour thing most blockbusters are is two hours. Um, so I don't think making <laughs> a movie twice as long, yeah, like the, the, that the the Snyder cut is four hours long. I don't think that's going to really help things. How do you want to cover that on this show? Should that just be one episode? I mean, that that's what we did for Infinity War and Endgame, right? Like we did one episode for those. Maybe we I, should. That might just need to be how we do. Yeah, it. that's a four-hour film, ladies and gentlemen. That is no joke. All right, I don't know how we're going to get through that whole thing. Probably watch it in installments. I mean, nobody can watch that in one sitting. Um, yeah, I, believe it or not, this trailer is actually not bad. The real talk. If you haven't seen the new Justice League trailer, it's actually kind of good. I, 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 if I had not seen the original. Ju- if I could hop in a time machine and go back to before OG Justice League came out and they released this trailer for it, I would be more excited than I was when I actually saw Justice League. It is a well-made trailer from some people who very clearly care. Um, that being said, time will tell what's going on in the actual movie, right? I mean, who knows? Who knows? It's not a no. Our next trailer, two more to go before we get to Minari. I promise we're moving through these. Uh, is for Disney's Cruella. Yes, you heard that right. Cruella DeVille is getting her own feature film. Live action, just like Disney's other animated, well, used to be animated endeavors, starring Emma Stone as Cruella. Weird casting choice, weird person to make a movie out of, but I think Disney's riding the success of Disney's Maleficent, right? Starring Angelina Jolie. They made, what, two of those films? Why not sneak in a Cruella DeVille movie? Sure, she kills puppies, but maybe she wasn't always bad. Emma Stone looks like a delight in this movie. And and I think that's mostly because this movie, if you haven't heard from the internet, kind of looks like Disney's answer to Joker. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It, it, it looks a lot like Todd Phillips's Joker film from a couple years ago. It is mostly handheld. It features a character who's obviously very vindictive and very flashy uh, and a bit crazy. Um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a weird looking trailer and I kind of still want to see it. Andy, what do you think? Well, it, it, I think it looks really good. Like it has that Disney polish, but sometimes like you just don't know. Like I've seen trailers that looked really great from Disney and then the movie's really not good. So it, it you can't, you don't really get a sense of what the movie's about. Like we don't get any plot uh, no. hints or anything like that. We just, a lot of scenes of, uh, I keep wanting to say Anne Hathaway, Emma Stone as as Cruella. And, and I mean, again, she looks fine. She looks great. You know, very cool to bring that character to life and like you said this is they do have precedent from having done the maleficent movies um it looks good i just don't know anything much more about it you know i'd be interested to see what kind of angle the uh, the story is going to go in yeah and and what you're going to do with it right like we live in the age of like sequels and prequels and reboots and cinematic universes let's just say for a second let's just speculate that emma stone's cruella just pops right off it's like amazing and people go see it and it's like, this is the most stunning work I've seen in years. Right. Who knows? The, Cru- the Cruella verse. It, right. It's not based on, an, on it. Well, I mean, it's based on Dalmatians, but as far as we know, the plot will be original. So they're not just lifting it off of like another story. This is kind of its own thing. Where are they going? Are you going to make three more Cruella movies? I guess they did it with the Maleficent. They made two of those. Right. So like you can yeah. just do another one, but I mean, does it lead right into 101 Dalmatians? Is she like chain smoking green smoke off the long cigarette thing again? Like how are we, I don't know. Time will tell, I guess that's, that's, that's Cruella. Yep. Looks good. We'll see. We'll wait to see more. You want to hit us with the last one? Right. And then the the final one we're going to talk about today is Tom Clancy's Without Remorse. This is based Mm -hmm. on a book novel by uh, the famed uh, author, Tom Clancy, who's uh, he's been dead for a while now, but his estate, his brand, uh, lives on. Um, this stars Michael B. Jordan as uh, the main character, and and he writes all of his no- novels are like spy, army, kind of yes. government, this and that. Um, the beginning of the, of the story, he he has been attacked by someone. His uh, family gets killed, wife gets killed, and he goes on some sort of like mission of of you know international revenge, and he's just kicking ass, a uh, bit j- like John Wick style. Um, that's all we kind of know a lot of action he's like a super soldier basically i i'm not i don't i haven't read the book i'm not familiar with the story looks cool michael jordan michael jordan michael b jordan (laughs) looks excellent in the role uh zach what do you think i think this movie looks like a certified sleeper that's what i think (laughs) okay let me be clear michael jordan michael b jordan looks like good stuff i i I don't think i've seen that guy turn out a phony performance yet uh the films i've seen him in i should clarify 
you know, there's some cool stuff happening in the trailer. There's there's a particularly like engaging scene at the end where he's like interrogating a guy inside of a burning car. That's pretty dope. Like I I dig that. But like 90% of it just looks like uh embittered former super soldier out to get his on some some unsuspecting mobster. It's basically like Punisher. Him. Yeah, or John Wick, or Mr. Nobody, or like, yeah, it, it checks a lot of these boxes of like, I used to be super cool, but I got out of the service, and now I've been pulled back in. Oh, they keep no. pulling me back in. I gotta go get vengeance, yeah, for somebody doing something to me. They crossed, crossed the wrong guy. Like, I I guess I'm into it, but it needs a little bit more meat. I mean, I said the same thing about Mr. Nobody, right? With, with uh, um, what's his name? Bob Odenkirk. Bob Odenkirk. Like, I appreciate he's a comedian. He's stepping into something a little different. But at the same time, um, it, it just looks like a generic, like, framework for a story. I'm like, yeah, they give me something a little bit more exciting, man. Like, I, I don't know. And I, I, I'm not super stoked about this one. Hopefully it's cool, though. I mean, the title certainly implies it's going to be a unique feature that nobody's ever seen um before without remorse uh so i don't know i don't know what, what do you think andy shoot i mean it looks fine it looks like a f- yeah fun it looks like right. a fine fine action movie yeah it's, you got action you got spy stuff you got michael b jordan beating people up shooting people like that's always good yeah uh, there's nothing wrong with that and with that, that wraps our trailers for the week. Like I said, uh, next week we'll be doing Oscar talks. So keep an eye out for that. We got noms coming. We got we got nom thoughts. Without further ado, though, we need to get to our final review of the episode. Andy, please take it away. Minari. David, look, they're wheels. Wheels? Look at the so this is a new film by director Lee Isaac Chung. It is uh, about a Korean family which moves to the rural south, I think in Arkansas, to start a farm in the 80s. Uh, the head of the household is Jacob, played by The Walking Dead, Stephen Yuen. Uh, he moves there with his wife, Anne, and their two uh, children, uh, David and... Uh, Mon- or, sorry, David and Anne are the children. Monica is his wife. So he moves there with his family, uh, to start a farm they're kind of starting over things are rough from the beginning you know they, they move into kind of this ratty trailer um his wife isn't super pleased they got to start this farm from scratch they you know he's got to dig a well he's got to buy farm equipment um and in the meantime they're having to work at this chicken plant to kind of sustain themselves while they're when they wait for the the farm to develop and in the meantime they're you know they're a Korean family in, in the rural South. And so, you know, they don't really have a lot of friends or a lot of neighbors. Uh, they do eventually hire on, a a, a farmhand, uh, played by Will Patton, uh, in a, in a good role. And so the, the, the story is about, uh, it's about family and about kind of community and this, the struggles that they're, they're going through, uh, through all this. At one point, the, the grandmother, uh, comes to live with them from Korea and that kind of causes a lot of stress within uh, the family as well. So it's about the relationships, the relationships between the husband and wife, between the parents and the children and between them and the community. Um, there, I really enjoyed this film. Uh, there's a, a lot to talk about. I'm excited to get into it. Zach, what are your thoughts? So I liked Minari. Uh, Minari is another great example of a movie that I was probably too excited for. I I genuinely kind of thought this was going to go in a different direction. I love the setup. Um, you know, we've talked about it on the show before. This is a, a American film about the American dream told through the eyes of people who have moved here and have to kind of adapt to what the rest of us have come to know as normalcy in life. Um, and it's really good stuff. And it's got, I think, some really powerful messaging in it. What surprised me was how subtle that messaging is. I, I a little expected to, to hit me over the head by the end of the movie, right? Paint me the picture and write me the Hallmark card poem. Like, tell me this is what the American dream is. This is what we're doing it all for. And Minari doesn't do that. It doesn't. It, it, it gives you all of the setup and then it kind of surprises you with where it goes. And I didn't think that was going to happen. And I was pleasantly surprised. I think it's understated uh, what it does, but I think it's, I think it's tastefully done. I think the director did some really fantastic work here and I'm really anxious to see what you think. Cause you and I have not talked about this at all yet. So mm-hmm. where do we start talking about Minari? 
Well, just to piggyback off what you were saying, uh, part of what why the film succeeds is because of what it doesn't do. So I thought it was going to kind of step into some familiar territory. Like I thought it was going to be about like racism in the South, right? Um, which it, it's not. Now there are you know some moments of kind of uh, insensitivity, but that's just kind of out of you know. Uh, benign ignorance more than than anything but it it's not about that it completely sidesteps that uh you know kind of totally and the other thing i i thought it was maybe going to be a you know a story about you know remembering the motherland remembering where you came from oh you know we are even though we're in america and doing american things we're still a strong proud korean people and uh, don't you ever forget it and it's not about that either you know, this is what it, so the, like the two things I was thinking this was going to be about. Um, it's not, and I'm I was pleasant like you pleasantly surprised that it doesn't kind of fall into these tropes. Yeah, I I, I really you know I th- I thought Minari was going to go someplace for sure. I mean, you've got you've got a South Korean family moving to uh, Ar- Arkansas, right? I think Where so. at? Yeah, yeah. In in the eighties, like. That checks some boxes for you thinking, okay, there's going to be some racism and these, 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 this family's going to have to really pull together to overcome adversity. It doesn't really do that. I mean, it, it, it does in, in, in like the most surface way you'd expect. They definitely catch an offhand comment from some folks about, you know, the war in Korea or something like that. But for the most part, that's not what this movie is. And, and that really impressed me. I didn't, I, I, I really thought it was going to just kind of fall into that. And it doesn't, it's much more a story about like this family and being in a strange place and having to, you know, kind of, kind of suss out what that means for each individual one of them. It's not just this, like this family that, okay, well, the times are tough. Let's come together and figure it out. It's about a mom who's like really conflicted with the decision her husband has made and a husband who has this grand aspiration for a garden of Eden of his own, but really isn't sure he's doing it in the best way, especially for his family. It's about kids who don't know where they're at and are in a new place. Right. And a grandma who's just showed up where they know nothing about, like really effective and to tell this all like in 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 an arkansas farm is i don't know it's it's really cool it it was really cool to kind of upset that apple cart of what i would expect and do something new in a framework i already know yeah it's really it's really a family drama it's about the again it's the struggle of the finances like the farm is the farm going to succeed is it not you know um you know they moved here from california from a bad situation to hopefully get a new start in a better situation um there's also just the struggle of so so i watched a video on this and this is really interesting um which you won't know unless you're you're like uh a a Korean speaker yeah. is everyone's accent is apparently very different. And the difference is like, uh, Jacob, Stephen Yuen's character. Um, he can speak Korean, but not, he's not great. It's not his, it's, it's not like his native language and it's not his native language in real life either. Um, his wife is an, is native Korean or her Korean is stronger, but her English isn't as good. And same thing with the, the kids. So there's, there's this weird language barrier where, you know, his English is better than hers, but her Korean is better than his. Same thing with the the children. They, they're more Americanized. They don't speak as well. And then the, when the grandma comes, she only speaks Korean. So there's this whole kind of like language dynamic, which you, you're not going to really be able to tell unless you're, um, you know, speak Korean. But you can still kind of get those those um, kind of situations that the characters are like, you know, the, that the that the grandma doesn't speak in English. Yeah, like you, you get the gist of it. The movie does a great job, uh, similar to Sound of Metal. We talked about that. The movie does a great job of using subtitles as a medium, um, because for most of the film, you're really relying on those subtitles. But every once in a while, a character will slip into English, and they'll catch off guard. I think in a way that's really encouraging, because when I'm expecting a character to be speaking Korean, and then they very quickly slip into my native language. It's like it's like a bomb going off on screen. Like suddenly it's like, oh, like I'm looking straight at them and I'm paying it much more attention like visually than I was when I was just reading subtitles quickly. Nothing nothing against what reading subtitles. I like watching foreign movies uh, as much as I think I can, but something about having them on occasion jump into English was really I don't know. It packaged it in a way that I didn't expect. It, it gave a flair to scenes that I didn't wouldn't normally anticipate because you get so used to just reading your subtitles. You know, you read your subtitles, you don't really know what they're saying um, audibly, but you're keeping up. And then suddenly just a shift. And, and that was a big surprise. And it happens on more than one occasion in the movie um, to great effect, especially when like the kids are speaking English, but the parents aren't. Um, really interesting. 
really, really smart presentation. Right. Um, so for some reason that reminded me of one of the things this movie is really about is community and they, they kind of are fish out of water here at where they are in the, um, you know, they're in the rural South and, you know, like they attempt to go to, to church at one point and it's just really kind of an awkward situation. Uh, it's very different from any kind of church they've gone to, but it's still, it's kind of about uh, cultural acceptance, but it's in reverse. You know, they're not waiting on people to accept them. It, it's about them kind of accepting the community that they live in because when they first meet um, Paul, which is the uh, the farmhand played by Bill Patton, um, very odd character, also deeply religious, uh, kind of, um, you know, he, he's the kind of guy lugs around a cross on Sundays, you know, yeah. if to, like a, the long suffering kind of believer here. And at first, like they're very kind of, they la- kind of laugh at Paul a little bit. And, but it, over the course of the movie, like they, they kind of, they accept him as a friend and kind of as a purpose and kind of his belief system. And it's, there's a whole thing about like being part of this community without necessarily having to assimilate into it. Yeah. Yeah, Will Will Patton is great. Um, if you don't know who Will Patton is, he's a character actor. I know him best from playing uh, Armageddon. One of the crew, yeah, one of the crew members in Armageddon. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> and Michael Bay's Armageddon. He plays Chick in that movie, but he's he's in this movie and he's got these big goofy Coke bottle lens glasses he wears, and he's super religious. But like, he's got heart, kid. That's how I feel about most good character actors, right? You're like, hey man, there's something you're doing here that works. And like, he brings it to this movie. Everybody in this movie is really good. The only actor I have any former experience watching is Steven Yoon from The Walking Dead and then a lot of voice work he's done. And also, Sorry to Bother You, which is an underrated movie and more of you should go watch. It's on Hulu. But, um, you know, everybody else in this I really enjoyed. They just felt very genuine. They just felt very honest. And the movie is presented in almost a dreamlike kind of format um we get some some kind of quick leaps through time as as our our lead uh, as our family starts to plant crops in this kind of bit of farmland they've got and then they start to grow right like in one scene they'll be planting next scene they're half grown next scene they're full grown so obviously we're moving through time efficiently but the movie doesn't feel like it is really expecting you to keep up with everything. It kind of tells that visually really what you're tracking is your family and how they're doing and how they're growing and, and where they're headed. And fortunately it doesn't, it doesn't jump over really long periods of time. It's efficient. In fact, the whole movie was shot in 25 days out in Oklahoma of all places. They weren't even in Arkansas. So it's an efficient film, but it's very almost reminding me like Terrence Malick's tree of life. Like very, very much like about memory and about like looking back and and kind of this this dreamlike garden of Eden they're approaching in Arkansas when really the rest of the world sees it as just a farm. Um, I appreciated the presentation that way. Hmm. I I wanted to talk about the um the 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 title uh, Minari, yeah. which is uh, a crop that uh, they kind of well the grandmas thinks that they should uh, they should planet and uh, minari is uh, a plant that i think is indigenous to korea and it's a very kind of resilient uh plant crop that will kind of grow in any in any uh environment harsh environments will adapt and it's kind of a metaphor for like the the family structure here Uh, but that, that was a really interesting kind of metaphor like the whole farming uh thing yeah, I looked it up because it's featured at one point in the film. Uh, they're, they're along this kind of creek bed and the grandma says, hey, this is Minari. And she's explaining to the young boy, David, uh, what's going on. Um, it's also known as Japanese parsley or Chinese celery. It's like a water. It's like basically a weed here in America. But like in another culture, like that's something they really like and enjoy using. And it's cool for them to kind of find that in the wild, finding finding something of value out in kind of this American frontier, I think, is is really something but it's under but it's not it's not too big they're not panning for gold right like they, they just find these things that are like oh hey this reminds me of like where we come from and who we are and that's important that's something that the, the kids actually really kind of struggle to learn over the course of the film they're very they're very much kind of americanized even the grandma says at one point in the trailer i remember this uh she says you know your your kids need to learn to be something along the lines of like learn learn to be more korean or learn learn where they're where they come from and it's like well they are like they're you know they're 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 kind of Korean American, but there's a bit of a culture culture jam that way, especially with Eastern and Western cultures. And this movie does a pretty good job of kind of writing that it doesn't ever really fall into this angle of, Hey, you should, you should remember where you come from, or you should think of where you are. 
it kind of does both. Like you should, you should be, be yourself, I think, and not be afraid of what other people think. That's a big part of what's going on here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did want to mention the soundtrack. Um, I didn't I enjoyed think, that. I enjoyed did you? it. I didn't like it. <laughs> really? Okay. I why? can't. Yeah. And you're a music guy. So maybe you can help me nail down why it just didn't feel tonally correct. Something about it. I kept watching and thinking, you know, a, a soundtrack to when, when a, when a, a composition for a film is made. It's the composer's best interpretation of what's happening and how they can kind of accentuate that story uh, through audio. Um, doesn't always work, right? Uh, Blade Runner 2049 famously had Johan Johansson doing the score up until months before release. And then a hard pivot into Hans Zimmer ended up turning out a really strong score. And we don't know what that originally sounded like, but sometimes a film doesn't quite get the right sound. I think that happened in this movie and I can't put my finger on why I, I, maybe it's because they use like a medley of different instruments. I, I don't know, but you, you liked it. So you're a music man. What am I crazy? What do you think? I mean, okay. So I saw this a couple of weeks ago, so I don't remember uh, yeah. the, a ton, but I just remember, I thought that it did, you know, the music did fit and it did kind of help the mood. And I just, I, I thought it was very fitting. Yeah. I, I suppose you're right. It definitely fit. It just didn't like, I don't know. No that's, int- no, that's interesting. It's a weird critique. Visually, I did like what they were doing, though. Like I said, they shot this whole thing in just under a month in Oklahoma. And I love the way the farm is presented because it's surrounded by trees. And you never really get a good look at the open landscape outside of it. And I kind of love that because it's supposed to be this, like, kind of personal story about this family in this what they call a Garden of Eden. And, like, what an appropriate presentation for that, right? Like, you never really get to see what the neighbors got going on. You do see parts of town. They go into town at points and they go to church at one point and and you kind of get an idea of what's going on in the greater Arkansas area they're supposed to be in. But like when it comes to actually being at the house on the farm, it's very intimate. It's very sincere and it feels very personal. And I think that's a perfect way to present the majority of the setting for this film because it makes us feel that much closer to our characters. Andy, am I rambling? Any other thoughts for recommendations? What do you think? I think we're running out of steam here. Well, the last thing I just wanted to say was that the, the performances are really strong, particularly by the wife, uh, uh, Monica, played by Yeri Han. Yes. Um, really standout uh, performance from her, as well as uh, the, the kids are good. Stephen Yuen 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 is also very good. Andy, would you? I agree. <laughs> the wife is really great, <laughs> by the way. Yeah, I forgot. She, she carries a big part of the emotional weight of this because the kids are kids, right? Like the adults are where we're going to really connect Um with with us the audience and and the the wife is definitely um got a lot of dramatic pressure on her i think she does a really good job of of meeting that and exceeding it and giving some uh, some good some some good wall space for steven yun to bounce off andy would you recommend minari yeah absolutely and this is kind of the difference between this and and nomadland is uh these are both like kind of deep and philosophical movies but i i was really engaged by this one i really went along with the narrative um it's very it's a struggle you know that this family is struggling financially and in kind of this new place but they're kind of have to bond together and work through like issues they have with each other um to kind of make it and i really went along with it and i really enjoyed it i thought it was very good I think I'd recommend it too. Um, oddly, unlike Nomadland, I think I have even less of like a, a group to <laughs> recommend this to in my life. Um, if you're obviously an avid film fan, if you're looking for something a little offbeat, but but very encouraging and very heartwarming and very hopeful, I would recommend Minari for sure. Um, it's it it surprised me in a way few films do, and and that's. In, in I say that in the best way I can because it's 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 good stuff. You can find Minari in theaters or on video on demand right now. It is $19.99 if you rent it from Amazon or iTunes or wherever you get your stuff. Um yeah, that's that's Minari. And that's our show for the week. I can't believe we're at the end of another one. Uh two Golden Globe winners. Andy, the last time the last time I feel like we had a show with this much staying power in, in the films we were watching was when we watched the lighthouse and parasite. And this doesn't yeah. quite, it doesn't quite meet that bar. That was, right. might've been the That's best in, week. That was insane. That was, that might've been, cinema. Yes, that might've <laughs> been the best week of off script we've ever done. Not for the episode we recorded, <laughs> but just for going to see two incredible films. This movie, this week definitely feels like it's coming up on that level. And I love it. What are we watching next week? 
Um, well, first thing, we have the Oscars announcements uh, early Monday morning. Uh, they announce them at 5 a.m. Uh, Pacific time uh, so that we get them at bright and early on the East Coast as well. Um, but we'll, So we'll be talking uh, what those nominations are in the next episode. We are also going to watch a request by uh, Jamal Park, uh, who's a fan of ours on Twitter. Yes, Jamal. We're, we're finally doing it. I'm so sorry. It took me five freaking weeks to make this happen. So we'll be watching L.A. Confidential, which is a classic neo-noir film from 1997. It's kind of got a who's who cast in it. Zach hasn't seen it. I haven't I, seen it. <laughs> I haven't seen it in, in years. Uh, yeah. So... I, I'm anxious to see it again. And we're also going to be checking out uh, Raya and the Last Dragon, which is the new re- big release from Disney, uh, which you can e- see in theaters except for Cinemark or rent for 30 bones at um, um, Disney+. Plus. Oh, $30, um, yeah. But it, it is... The, I was reading this as Disney's first actual like big release since the pandemic started a year ago. They hadn't actually released anything in theaters. Right, because Soul went straight to streaming services. Well... It won't be released in Cinemark theaters, that's for sure. Jamal, thanks for writing in. I'm excited to watch LA Confidential. I've never seen it. Man, in in, in the time you've recommended this movie, I've told people I, I, that I'm going to watch LA Confidential for the show, and they're like, oh, man, have you seen that movie? I said, no. And that, it's totally one of those, you haven't seen LA Confidential movies? Like, I've like I've missed out on Star Wars or something? It's for almost all I 20, know, it's almost 25 years old. It looks like, like good stuff, all right? I haven't watched, I'm, I haven't watched the trailer. I've always heard of it. I've seen the poster a few times. I'm going to go in fresh. I want to go in neat. I just I just want to fall right into what that movie's doing. I love a good detective noir. I think that's what's happened in that movie. So we'll see. Yeah, I'll keep you posted. And also, we're going to watch Ryan the Last Dragon. Andy agreed. I don't believe it. Andy, thanks. You're taking one for the team here. I'm excited to watch it uh, and report on the show. So the rest of you don't have to pay $30. If you enjoyed the show today, do us a solid. First things first, follow Jamal on Twitter at Mapstone Park. Gotcha, buddy. I hope you get some clout from our clout. You won't, but you know, (laughs) (laughs) thanks. Thanks for writing in. I appreciate it. And if you want to write in and be cool, like Jamal has and recommend us some cool stuff, you can email us at mail at offscriptfilmreview.com. You can check out our website, offscriptfilmreview.com, where we post new episodes, interviews we do with media, mostly Andy, just Andy, but you know, interviews Andy does with media and other featurettes. You can follow us on Facebook where we live stream the show every single Tuesday. We're on Instagram, we're on Twitter, and we're on YouTube. And you can find us over there too. Leave a comment and let us know what you thought of the episode or tell us uh, what we should do next, right? Give us a recommendation. Tell us we're crazy for thinking what we thought about Minari or that No Man Land really is worth recommending. Andy, who knows? You can tell us anything and we'll probably talk about it live on the show. If you can do anything for us, though, if you enjoyed listening to the episode today, if you want to know more, if you want to get involved, the biggest thing you can do is just subscribe. Subscribe to get new episodes of Offscript delivered straight to your phone every single Tuesday evening when we do them. You can also rate and review. That would help us a ton. Rate and review all the podcasts you listen to, not just us. It's good podcast policy. Do, us, do all those podcasters solid and rate and review your favorite episodes. With that being said, from all of us to Offscript, the home of Bold Cinema, I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Thanks for watching.